This spot is brought to you by Eaton Vance, the symbol of advanced investing. What's inside your ETF? With Parametric Equity Premium Income ETF, you know. Inside, you'll find institutional expertise from a specialized team with deep derivatives experience. Get to know what's inside PAPI, the symbol of alternative income, at eatonvance.com symbols. Before investing, prospective investors should carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. The current prospectus contains this and other information and is available at eatonvance.com. Read the prospectus carefully before investing. Not FDIC insured. Offer no bank guarantee. May lose value. Not insured by any federal government agency. Not a deposit. Investments involve risk. Principal loss is possible. Distributed by Foresight Fund Services, LLC. The views expressed on this podcast are those of the participants, not of Reuters News. The annual forum for the world's leading countries to do something about climate change is nearly upon us. Will COP27 manage to achieve any more than last year's somewhat underwhelming equivalent? Have a listen to Breaking View's chat with two of its leading lights. Welcome to The Exchange, our weekly interview slot with the movers and shakers of global finance. I'm George Hay, Amir Editor of Breaking Views, the financial commentary arm of Reuters, and I'm coming to you from London. COP27, the year's premier climate change conference, is about to kick off in Sharm el-Sheikh, Egypt. Two of its key players are the United Nations high-level champions for climate change, Mahmoud Mahaldeen and Nigel Topping. Their job is to engage with businesses, cities and investors to try to make decarbonisation more than just a top-down government objective. Handily enough, they've taken time out of their rammed schedules to talk to Breaking Views. We wanted to ask them what success would look like given war and the energy crisis have taken some of the attention away from climate change. We also wanted to know whether developing world countries would get much needed financial help to decarbonise and adapt to global warming, and whether a temporary spike in coal use on the part of some countries is a cause for concern. Stay tuned to find out what they said. there Nigel and hi there Mahmoud um thanks so much for joining us hi George good to be with you hi uh, um yeah thanks so much for your time um so we'll, we'll kind of kick off by um looking at um I mean, obviously COP27 is almost up upon us um what what would you say is your your kind of uh, if you had to single something out what would be your kind of key objective uh for 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 this COP? We'll start with you, Nigel. Well, I think, you know, given that our, our role is to work with non-state actors, and, and maybe Mahmoud can say some more about the presidency's objectives overall, but the, in terms of non-state actors, it's all about demonstrating that all the pledges that were made um, in COP26 and before are now leading to change. So people who said they would set very specific targets and plans are now setting them and implementing them, and then we're moving into the phase of all COPs being largely about implementation. That would be the overall objective for for us working with non-state actors right and what about you Mahmoud? yeah i think uh, uh to complement uh, what uh, nigel just mentioned yes is to get the momentum going uh built on uh, glasgow um realizing that we're in a very different world um uh, from where we were uh, last year with many developments so we have to uh, factor in how climate action could be part of the solution to some of the immediate issues of concern, uh, including energy access, um, uh, food security uh, uh, concerns. 
Um, and I would say that um, the non-state actors uh, work needs to be pushed further in mitigation, needs to be rediscovered when it comes to adaptation, and needs to identify a role uh, when it comes to um, the loss and damage. And definitely the heavy lifting on finance uh, will be more the private sector in the future, given that states uh, reach the limits of funding because the majority of funding is still uh, coming from public sources. Right, that's interesting. So, I mean, there are plenty of interesting things there. Um, just one thing I wanted to ask was uh, at the end of COP26, um, uh, Lok Sharma, uh, who was in charge of uh, the event, he, he was um, he he was kind of he he was trying to he, he was talking about the, the the goal to keep warming to restrict warming to 1.5 degrees Celsius, and he was saying that the pulse of that um, objective was still there, but it was very weak. Um, I just wondered, given the distractions that Mahmoud was talking about there, which are obviously like the the war and the energy crisis. Um, uh how do you how do you think about that objective the 1.5 degrees is is the pulse any stronger now or is it even weaker how, well, how do you think nigel i mean I, I think it's marginally stronger i mean we have we have some short-term actions that are going in the wrong direction but all of the evidence is that actually the overall transition is accelerating i mean you just look at the momentum on electrifying the vehicle fleet in india and china for example which are now looking right. at compact compound growth of 100%, like doubling sales of electric vehicles every year, not just light vehicles, but also heavy vehicles. Um, you look at the right. amount of money that's still flowing in and increasing in, into energy. So I think, I think that, I mean, we're not, we're not going fast enough yet, but we're also seeing other technologies like green hydrogen and green steel and green shipping, same aviation fuel hitting the kind of exponential phase. So we really right. need to pile in behind that. And that's a question of private sector. And policy, but as as Mac says, there's a huge action deficit on adaptation, and that's a lot of the energy that we're putting into is trying to get that going, so that has the same kind of momentum as the as the as the private sector momentum now policy supported on mitigation. Right, and um, I'll, I'll I'll come on to the adaptation point with uh, Mahmoud in a minute, but the uh, I mean another key COP26 kind of objective or hope was to try and get. Um, you know that the big emitters in the world, uh, obviously countries, also companies, to deliver meaningful targets, not just for 2050, but kind of talking about the need to kind of high halve emissions overall by 2030 to stick to that 1.5 target. Yeah. Um, and it didn't really, you know, there was some progress, but not a great deal. Um, and I just wondered where, like Nigel, where do you think we are on? big emitters like China and India, um, you know, how 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 do we proceed if they aren't really going to kind of come up with really robust targets in the short term, i.e. 2030? How much does it matter? Well, obviously, they're both very big economies, very big populations, very big um, emitters, China, China in particular. Again, I, I think you have to look at what's actually happening on the ground. Right. I mean, mm. India has got incredibly ambitious plans to go to 175 yeah. gigawatts this year and 500 yeah. gigawatts by 2030, and it's on track to do so. It's now, and it's, look at it, I think they've just um, they're just talking about a 10 billion dollar contract. I think it'd be the largest e-bus tender in the world. So I, I just think you have to remember there's a certain amount of politics 
in talking about we're going to be net zero 2060 or 2070 because we don't have to go as fast as everybody else. But then there's a mm-hmm. then look at the economics and the way that decisions are being made to improve, to create jobs, to grow economies, to improve health, but also to win competitiveness battles internationally. I mean, China's doing pretty well in solar panel manufacturing, turbine manufacturing, batteries, EVs. So I would I would not look so much at what people are saying about 2060, 2070, but look what they're actually investing in right now and the direction that that points us in. Right. OK. And then, I mean, I suppose another um, thing to come on to you, uh, Marmu, as an area that you're particularly interested in, that at the end of COP26, uh, there was a big gap between um, the amount of money requested by developing world countries to help them not only decarbonize and mitigate but also adapt to climate change as you mentioned um and there was a bit of a gap between that and what the what, what was actually agreed um and i mean maybe it was ever thus and it's you know that's often the story of um cops but like in if we if we stop the clock now is there any more cause to be optimistic um how would you be what how do you feel about that overall issue? Yeah, well, I, I think it depends very much on how we measure optimism by. If it is based on the uh, old promise of the 100 billion uh, to make the change, we need to realize first that it's only a very small amount of what is required to close to close gaps of funding for any um, uh, line of business when it comes to climate action. Um, uh, including energy transformation. And we need to be fair at the same time that uh, not all countries are the same when they delivered because we have uh, six or seven countries doing fantastically well in their progress towards providing their fair share. Some of the Nordic countries, Netherlands, Germany and Japan, others are not doing the same. But uh, even if everybody is doing that fair share, I think we need to use the money more wisely to leverage private sector to help in dealing with higher risk, especially in uh, frontier markets. Uh, And we need to mobilize the private sector to do more until we agree on a figure uh, for uh, the the future post 2025 uh, that uh, uh, countries and those who make the pledges can honor um, uh, their promises. Uh, so it's right. all about how to get the public finance supporting more leveraging uh, of the private sector, bearing in mind that the private sector had realized its role uh, almost fully um, when it comes to opportunities in mitigation and decarbonization in solar energy, green hydrogen projects. There will be very big announcements to be made here in Egypt uh, in uh, in projects in, from Africa in green hydrogen. Right. Some of them are in partnership with India and European countries and a couple of Gulf countries. So green hydrogen, solar, wind are um, progressing. Adaptation still 98% dependent on public finance. And we need really to, to think on how can we bring the private sector into this growing area of business. Yeah, how do you, how do you actually, I mean, uh, I mean, I realise that's the question you're trying to answer, but like, what is, how do we think about private sector interest in adaptation finance? I mean, uh, uh, are there any are there any kind of you know promising uh, initial steps that you can kind of point to? 
Yes, um, I think um, uh, Professor Duflo, who won the Nobel Prize in Economics, and I had a discussion with her uh, two weeks ago, I think she mm. has an interesting um, uh, filters that we can consider. First, it's science and technology. Um, and I think without the advances in science and technology that reduced uh, the cost of doing business in the mitigation front, wouldn't really be celebrating the many good examples of uh, mitigation as we see them today around the world. The other part, right. uh, we need to see something like that as well. Uh, in the adaptation front, which is more difficult. The second is related to um, uh, finance and how to get the risk and the incentive structure associated with finance uh, to get the private sector more involved in this. And this would require policy and regulatory changes. And, and the final part is how to package projects. And I was just in discussion here in Egypt talking about a couple of desalination projects uh, with right. a good... Uh, energy to water management and linking to food production. Here you can really get the private sector in this bigger mix of opportunities, in, including, I would say, there are some uh, well-established models that we can replicate, including investing in um, um, mangrove forests, as my good friends in the Gulf uh, areas like to call them. Uh, but right. uh, uh, more is needed, more is needed. Right. Yeah, yeah, and, and, and George, maybe, yeah. maybe I'd, add, I'd add to that. I think um, it, it's we are starting to see, I think as a result of all the momentum we have with all the GFANS um, uh, alliances, you know, seven alliances, 550 members, all committing to science-based targets to race to zero. We're, now, we're starting yeah. to see more and more funds being raised. You've know, got Invesco raising an LDC debt fund, 91 raising an African infrastructure fund, you know, BlackRock right. and a growth equity funds for adaptation. If you think about the millions of farmers who need solar irrigation solutions, the hundreds of millions of people who need clean cooking solutions, the cold chain opportunity. I was in, in, in Nigeria recently, some amazing startups there providing solar powered cold chain solutions, which are immediately increasing the revenue of smallholder farmers because they're not losing right so much of the product on the way to market. And all of those need financing. They're different from, say, desalination, which Macmillan talks about is a massive infrastructure project. That's one type of finance. You know, Financing small and medium-sized enterprises and smallholder farmers who need small loans to invest in their, their sort of appropriate cold chain technologies, very different. So I think we are seeing momentum. Macmillan is just going to uh, chair the GFANS Africa network so that we work more on what are the finance solutions for Africa in an African context, because they're obviously very different from North America or or, or, or or Europe. So I think this, the, the big message I want to send is, is that adaptation resilience is not uninvestable. It just requires more problem solving to figure out the right vehicles and the right structures for finance to flow. But we know it will improve economic growth. So there has to be a way of unlocking the finance, but we need to we need to get our problem solving hats on. OK, interesting. Um, what about the, the, the big um, international um, public bodies like the IMF or the World Bank um, yeah. with reference to yeah. what you were just talking about is there are they doing enough um, would you like them to go faster how should they be kind of um, stepping into to this area right um, three things I'd like to, to share very quickly here um, the World Bank and um, other MDBs multilateral development banks have been uh, involved in, in this area for quite some time now and many of them had strategies to have at least uh, 30 or 35 percent of their portfolios uh, dedicated to climate action. Actually, some of them are even more ambitious 
like the Europe-based ones, uh, European Investment Bank and EBRD, where, um, and they, they describe themselves as the climate finance institutions, not forgetting, of course, the development role. And, and there is no divorce or trade-off between uh, the, the two actions, the climate action and development action at the end, uh, growth yeah. will be dependent on many of the investment there. Uh, I would say that they need to do more, especially on the adaptation front, because uh, on average, 70 to 80 percent of their finance goes still to mitigation. Where I still right. see that the private sector can do a better ro uh, job there, we may, may need help on, uh, on political risk insurance in some countries, like from MEGA in the case of the World Bank, they may need to have some partnership for assurances as well uh, with some of these regional banks. But definitely what we require more from these institutions is to go to the, the to, uh, through the road that is less traveled, uh, which is more, more uh, in the adaptation. The final thing, um, and there is a reason, and uh, Nigel had heard me, and I think he may confirm uh, uh, some of the things that I'm saying there, that why developing economies feel and realize that the climate finance, when it comes to uh, um, um, uh, developing economies, is unfair and uh, insufficient, and I would say inefficient as well. That requires changes. The inefficiency needs to be solved by uh, being more agile and faster in the dissemination of funds. Some of these MDBs and green uh, specialized funds are faster than others, but it's not fair to wait for three years until you get your money from your uh, from uh, you shaking hands with the uh, finance officer in one of these institutions. The second, the cost is still very high, and I would say again, it's unfair to uh, to borrow heavily um, uh, with foreign exchange volatility um, included then. Um, uh, especially the, with the cost of the uh, of the borrowing these days, and I think it could be fairer to have IDA rules, which is the International Development Association rules, uh, which is more concessional with more uh, uh, grace period. And definitely, all of these institutions need to be uh, capitalized. And I um, I realize that many of good European voices and the US as major shareholders during the annual meetings have been saying that they can really be doing more. Um, uh, in order to capitalize these institutions. Finally, the case of the IMF, IMF was never in this domain. Um, under the leadership of Kristalina, it realized its role. They established a new fund called the Resilience and Sustainability Trust Fund. It started right. operations, yeah. and I'm happy to see Barbados as one of the first beneficiaries of this fund. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So, so uh, something. So something's happening. Sorry. Sure. Yeah. Ahead. There's a lot. There's a lot. I mean, of course, I fully agree with um, with Mahmoud and his sort of uh, summary of sort of international climate finance. What the things we, we we've got rather obsessed with 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 a one-dimensional goal, and what we need to do is be much more holistic about thinking through from the size of the problem to the amount of money that's needed yeah, and, that, and that where it will come from. That one-dimensional goal being what? Like, hundred billion. The government. Right, 100 billion, right? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I mean, I mean, and, and and again, you know, even when, even when, even when, it, you know, it's great that the MDB say that they're mobilising 35% of their assets, but even that's a front of pipe measure. And if they're just pushing it into um, solar projects, which um, the private sector could and should finance, then they're yeah, not yeah. going to the they're not going to the place less travelled, as Mahmoud talks about, and, and and opening the way for the private sector to come in. We know about 70% of the finance needed needs to come from the private sector. So we need to have a, a, an actually a more a, a, a broader conversation about the overall architecture of a massive inf investment drive 
it's much more like a global Marshall Plan with local resource mobilization, more and smarter international resource mobilization, and and a lot of finance coming in as well. And and you know the the you know there is a, there does seem to be an opening up now. You know you've got the Bridgetown agenda that Maya Motley posed as Machmeter. Some of the shareholders of the MPBs are talking about reform. It's not just about more capital, as Machmeter teaches me all the time. It's also about the way we think about debt and have to change some of the mechanisms around debt. And it's also around the massive lack of insurance and the need to, and the need to close that, that, that protection gap, and particularly the most vulnerable countries. So we need a more holistic approach and, and a massive overall scaling up in insurance, in, in debt reduction um, and in flows of capital. OK, very interesting. Um, I mean, we should talk about the, the energy crisis, um, given that it uh, continues to uh, to persist. I mean, last year, before around the end of COP26, there was a great focus on this kind of difference between phasing down coal and phasing out coal. And um, what has happened since then is that, for, for fairly obvious reasons to do with the price of gas, uh, certain countries like Germany are using quite a lot of coal at the moment. Um, and I just wondered what you thought of, I mean, coal was a big, big uh, topic of COP26. So, Nigel, I mean, what, what do you think of um, where we are on that front? As, uh, do, you, do you worry that the focus has shifted decisively to the slower of those two phasing options? Oh. No, not at all. I don't think there's any evidence that you've got to you've got to distinguish in short term sort of panic measures, crisis measures, and medium term measures. The, you, the EU's talking about raising its NDC ambition next year right. now, and they're not they're not burning coal because of the price of gas. They're burning coal because they're worried that they're just going to run out of energy full stop, right? So it's kind of let's burn anything yeah. we can get our hands on. And that's that's a kind of a two year problem, but it's shifted the geopolitics. I mean, you just read the the, the World Energy Outlook. I mean, they're absolutely defensively yeah. calling peak fossil fuels this decade yeah. and if you look at if you look at some of the great work from Kings Mill Bond at RMI looking at the actual exponential trajectories that we're on um, then he's talking about a reduction in fossil fuel use in Europe between 30 and 60 percent by 2030. So I don't think I think you should really not conflate short-term actions with, with medium to with, with, with medium-term trends um, and if anything I think the evidence is quite strong that this war is going to accelerate the decline of coal and the energy transition overall, and of course, high and the realization that there will always be volatile fossil fuel prices is a very good um, reason for locking into predictable low renewable prices. It's why, it's why you know, if, if for example, part of the Egyptian Nawafi plan, which Mahmoud is very involved in, and we were, we were looking at um, a month ago, calls yeah. for a five gigawatt reduction in burning gas and a 10 gigawatt increase in renewables, and that's the in a very simple headline level, what uh, many um, middle-income countries will be doing in the next 10 to 15 years. That's interesting. I mean, I, I suppose, um, like you mentioned, that you know that you have this important distinction between the, the short-term um, issue with where people will be burning coal, and it's a, but as you say, it's a short-term thing. But like, I mean, it's still, it's still kind of time that um, the planet doesn't necessarily have. Um, given that we're against the clock to kind of uh, get emissions down. And I just wondered, what, what do you think of, um, uh, like, I mean, what what do we do about the fact that there, we have that kind of extra year or two years where we're kind of not maybe going as fast as we could because of the energy crisis? What, what happens to all the extra emissions that are being <laughs> emitted, if you see what I mean? Um, 
Uh, maybe Nigel, first of all, I'd be interested in both of your views here. Well, it, I mean, it's very bad news, right? I mean, it shows the folly of Merkel shutting down nuclear power plants that were producing zero well, carbon power when there's no seismic zones in sight and using, using um, you know, Japanese tsunami as a reason to trigger that and then continuing to burn brown lignite. I mean, it's, it's one of the worst bits of climate policy um, in, 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 recent, in recent history. And they're, they're suffering from that now. They, they wish they'd kept those, all the nuclear power plants open and maintained and and yeah but they but they will shut down all the lignite by, by, by 2030 maybe sooner so it's really bad news it's just going to put more pressure on everybody to um to to decarbonize faster right yeah but mahmoud i mean you, do you think there's um uh do we do we need to kind of um ramp up uh you know carbon capture plan b's and things like that um in order to deal, deal in order to offset these extra emissions, um, or, or right. what? Right. When I when I try to get the um, uh, operationalization part seriously of of the Paris Agreement, I cannot see any segment of it as a substitute to the other. When we say that we need yeah. to do more in mitigation, this doesn't need uh, mean really that we need to sacrifice what we should be doing in adaptation right. because we have a great deal of effort in that front. And when we do better sometimes in both, we realize the gains, but there is still a very burning fire, which is about loss uh, and damage that we're very much reminded uh, of strongly uh, during the last uh, few weeks and months in Pakistan, in Europe and other countries. So um, I would say the following. Yes, the observation is right that under the pressure short term, as Nigel mentioned, there is a kind of a first wave of um, extreme pragmatism and flex flexibility to burn yeah. anything available in order to avail energy required for lives and livelihoods. But at yeah. the same time, it triggered and markets can test, uh, can provide a good test to that. There is a stronger wave of investments in renewables. There has never been such an interest in green hydrogens or in green hydrogen yeah. solutions or investment in alternatives, including nuclear, in my region here in Africa, Middle East, and Europe. And as we have seen it demonstrated in a tour that Niger and I did around the world in the five economic regions of the UN, when we see all sources of energy renewable with low emission from small scale off-grid to the big ones from Latin America to Asia. So I think there are two waves. One of the short term because of the pressure post-COVID, post-Ukraine. And then mm. there is the, uh, the, the longer term that started actually now by investing in these projects. And actually, those who know the market better are my brothers and friends in the Gulf. And I were in meetings with the UAE here in Egypt yesterday. And they realized yeah. that this... Uh, uh, this wave of increasing prices in, in oil is not going to be forever. And they, yeah. they themselves are investing heavily in nuclear, in uh, in wind and in solar. Yeah, and they'll obviously be host, hosting COP28 as well. Yeah. So they'll be particularly yeah. interested in all that. Um, you, me you mentioned the kind of investment. I mean, uh, one thing that um, there has been the kind of around the edges of uh, GFANS, I mean, they obviously did this commitment at COP26, um, and they all committed to, to targets, and um, that's all kind of very promising. But there there has been some kind of uh, mutterings around the edges of it of certain players saying, well, we 
you know we don't want to be too restricted in what what we can do um tends to be the kind of us the big us banks but um and so far none of them have formally quit g fans but are you are you a bit worried that um if um the screw starts starts to be turned a bit too tightly some of them will leave and does that matter well i think the first thing to say is that that all those alliances, including the Banking Alliance, um, have worked very closely with the Race to Zero to set a set of criteria which reflect the overall commitment to reduce emissions in line with the science to get to net zero by 2050 and to have a fair share of halving this decade. And that's really hard for everybody. <laughs> right. I mean, we've got we've got air, we've got aviation companies have committed, car companies, steel companies, cement companies. It's really hard, right? They're talking about complete turnover of their capital stock in the next couple of decades so yeah but of course you know in the finance sector you're invested in the whole economy whether you're a banker or an asset owner or an asset manager so that it's sort of it's hard but another level of complexity right because you're dealing with you have to you have to sort of navigate every one of those um so i i think it's good that people are noticing that it's hard i mean as you say no one's dropped we had a couple of minor um, mass asset owners drop out earlier in the year but yeah. the, you know that's that's normal We've, i think the g fans report progress report going to show 100 additional finance institutions since Glasgow, um, 150 right. trillion, even with the state of markets now. So the focus is really on implementation. And that's the hard work. People have got to roll their sleeves up. We're, now we're seeing, you know, a year ago, we had no banks with detailed sectoral targets. Now I think we've got about 53. And that's going up all the time because you know, when, when they made the initial commitment, they had a year or 18 months, depending on the sector, to, yeah. to, to, to do the detailed work. And that detailed work is happening. You know, bankers and asset managers are doing really complex work to think, how do we change our businesses so we reduce the financed emissions in, in, in line with science? And that means order of magnitude 25 to 35 percent for oil and gas by 2030. But that, and that's happening now. Right. So um, and it's going to be transparent because they're all committed to being transparent. So they'll be judged by regulators, investors um, and civil society. So, yeah, it's really tough for everybody. Right. What, what we said and we published a report in, in Climate Week is all of these voluntary initiatives are great for building momentum, but, it, but regulators have to regulate. Right. So I think that, you know, whether it's the SEC or the uh, or the ISSB work or EFRAG in Europe, that needs to happen because you have to embed the ambition in markets. Otherwise, laggards will hold the whole transition back. Yeah. Uh, if I may add to, the, to what yeah. I just mentioned now, uh, it's great to have all of these alliances, coalitions, movements. Um, um, we're more interested, actually, in the actions in the field. And right. whether these kind of, of partnerships and alliances are making transformation in the field or not. What, what I've started to realize, positively speaking here, that during the last few weeks and months, uh, with the establishment of a chapter in Asia, now with um, um, a more aggressive uh, uh, a chapter as well being uh, built in, in Africa, focusing from day one on deals, on how to uh, push the pipeline of projects that we have been um, uh, uh, putting as uh, illustrative examples, and in many of these uh, 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 pipeline building processes, the GFANs were in the room or represented. Uh, th this is basically what will make the change. I still, I know that Glasgow uh, uh, released and uh, many good things out, but one of the most uh, important thing that came out is basic about this issue of project structure. The project that could phase out from coal, invest in renewables, deal with the impact on society. If we have a pipeline of project that GFANS members can really push them further, 
that would be great deal for the cause, regardless the line of coalition they, they like to choose. As as Nigel mentioned, yes, uh, these coalitions are for building momentum and getting this kind of energy in the room and beyond. But definitely there are other things that we should be putting into consideration um, uh, that these banks and institutions are accountable the, to their competition authorities, regulatory agencies, their own general assemblies. And with that, with all of these constraints and opportunities as well that are there, I'm much more focusing on what will happen in the next few months and the next couple of years when we see more funds going to projects where we need them to be in renewables and adaptation and decarbonization and the rest of the list of the climate action agenda or not. This is basically okay. the thing that I need to focus my my time and my energy on. In addition, of course, to making sure that we are not really challenging any any of the well established rules of engagements under regulatory framework that are uh, adequately respected. And okay, very be. good, very good. Just just uh, lastly, the, um, I just wanted to kind of men mention other some other things which are um, big at COP26, which would continue to be kind of in. Uh, important uh, methane and deforestation. Um, I just wondered, are you satisfied that there's enough focus on these areas, which are kind of really big parts of the um, uh, global warming uh, problem? Uh, and I mean, you, um, there's, there was the recent food and land use transition report, which you kind of tried to kind of uh, emphasize how important these things are. Do you, do you, do you think that the message is getting across, um, uh, Nigel? I think they are, but these, I mean, these are the two sort of low-hanging fruits, right? These are two things which, you know, ending deforestation and massively reducing methane, particularly leakage from oil and gas, mm. you know, with that with that sort of particular global warming um, factor for methane, which is you know, much more short-term, are the two things that. Um, so I, I think there is good, there's good momentum. You know, we have we have um, I can't remember 128 or something countries now in the global methane pledge um and we've got marcelo mina leaning leaning that work even the ogci which i think has been very disappointing in terms of their actual commitment to tackle climate change across the whole oil and gas um, value chain including scope three they've got a good piece of work um on on methane leakage reduction yeah. S similarly um deforestation i think you know we're getting more traction now in the finance community and that that, that was just the report that we published earlier showing the, the amount of value at risk and again i think that um, there's been a lot of focus on heavy energy emitters and users and, and i hope that the finance community with many more of them looking sectorally at what they need to do will um you know there's there's, there's a significant number but not enough yet um really leaning into eliminate the the agricultural practices which are driving deforestation interesting okay well last last word to you Mahmoud. um what do you think on that particular issue well, um, I, I think uh, as you'll be seeing it reflected on the agenda and the sessions dedicated to uh, methane, uh, linking it to the agricultural sector and other sources of uh, of methane uh, emissions as well, including in the in the oil sector. Uh, I think there is a, a good momentum there and good uh, practical proposal uh, proposals in a COP that is emphasized, that is uh, um, uh, pushing implementation on uh, deforestation and um, uh, linking that to some financial instruments. I'm happy to say that two important initiatives, one in uh, um, uh, uh, carbon markets uh, for developing economies with 
focus on uh, the African markets, and the other one in debt reduction mechanisms and swaps are linking their work to uh, forest and deforestation. Um, so uh, you will be seeing not just the talk about the importance um, uh, of the matter as proven by science, but basically taking the scientific solutions into action supported by finance and by public-private partnerships to implement them. Okay, well, listen, um, thanks so much for uh, joining us uh, on this uh, interesting podcast. Um, it's good to talk to both of you and the best of luck for COP27. Thanks, thanks very much for being on the exchange. Thank you so much. Thanks, George. Thanks, Mahmoud. Thanks for tuning in. This podcast was produced by Oliver Tashlich in London. Subscribe to The Exchange and our sister podcast, The Views Room, on Acast, Megaphone, or wherever you get your podcasts. Check out our latest views on breakingviews.com and on Twitter, where our handle is at breakingviews. This spot is brought to you by Eaton Vance, the symbol of advanced investing. What's inside your ETF? With Eaton Vance High Yield ETF, you know. Inside, you'll find smart bond selection from a specialized team with deep fixed income expertise. Get to know what's inside EVHY, the symbol of high yield done right at eatonvance.com slash symbols. Before investing, prospective investors should carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. The current prospectus contains this and other information and is available at eatonvance.com. Read the prospectus carefully before investing. Not FDIC insured. Offer no bank guarantee. May lose value. Not insured by any federal government agency. Not a deposit. Investments involve risk. Principal loss is possible. Distributed by Foresight Fund Services, LLC.